Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Taryn Mays, filling in for our regular host, Adam and Elizabeth. They're out this week, but I am here with Marcus Raglan, who we're going to introduce soon, and we are joined by special guest Michael Snetzer. Today, we're continuing our series on mental health and are going to have a conversation about substance abuse. So before we jump into today's topic, I want to first introduce a new voice to Culture Matters, to Marcus. To Marcus, hi. How's it going? Good. So good. Thank you for being with us. Uh, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your role here at Citizens Church, maybe even how you got got to Citizens? Of course. Uh, so like you said, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. I am the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. Uh, my wife and I have been here for roughly five or so years Um, And before coming on staff, we became members. I prior to this was a teacher at a Christian school in the area um, and before that a youth pastor. And so kind of had a hodgepodge um, of experience. But but youth ministry has been a a core of my background. I got my undergraduate from Moody um, in youth ministry and also did some graduate work at University of Dallas in humanities. And so. Uh, all that is to say, I'm a big nerd. I love kids. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah being a minister of the gospel is just all the things that I love. That's so. right. That's right. And you are a gifted minister, a gifted, um, a gifted man. You teach the Bible so well. You love people well. You are collaborative mm. and thoughtful and intelligent. And you're also a really good dad to two beautiful babies. Mm. And have a beautiful wife who is also godly and intelligent. We love her so much. So yes, those um, are all my the the best parts of me. My wife Chrissy. We've been married just celebrated six years in June. Praise God. Um, and Taj on our anniversary celebrated two years of life. <laughs> That's amazing. Got to take him to a farm and have a good time. And his sister who puts up with all of our crazy Matea is six months and it's just a beautiful bright presence in our home. And so yes. Love, love the fam. That's amazing. Well, we love you. I'm glad that you are are with us today. And uh, now for our special guest, Michael Snetzer. Uh, Michael's one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, he is a gifted pastor. But Michael, I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself and what you do, and, and particularly uh, really about your experience when it comes to the topic of substance abuse. So walk us through a little bit about you, your story, and sure. how you got here. Yeah. First of all, uh, family. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Sonia. Uh, we have three children. My daughter, McKenna, who's 26, Ava, who is 13, and Grayson, who is 10. I serve here as the recovery pastor here at Citizens Church. I've been here since we were a campus of the Village Church, and so been here for the seven years that we've been here in Plano. Um, In addition to my work here at the church, I'm in part-time private practice, and so I'm an LPCS. I do that one day a week on the side, and so love doing that as well. And I'm also the director of a nonprofit called Gospel Recovery Network, that seeks to provide a gospel alternative to what the world offers in terms of treatment. That's good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. As far as my experience, um, there's a personal side to that. There is a 
professional side of that and there's a ministerial side of that. Um, on the personal side, uh, the Lord actually rescued me out of a life of addiction um, back in early 2000, January of 2000. Praise God. Um, the Lord saved me in a drug treatment center in South Texas. And um, it wasn't necessarily a gospel-centered treatment center, but we know that Jesus, He not only is in the religious centers, but He's also on the fringes. And He touched my life in a miraculous way. And maybe there'll be time at some other time to go into that story, but it is a beautiful story of God's just awakening my heart to who He is, <clears throat> excuse me, and giving me a desire uh, to follow Him. And so the orientation of my life and the trajectory of my life changed on that day. And at that point, entering into treatment, I was a 24-hour day, seven-day-week methamphetamine addict. I'd been a alcoholic for most of my adult life, and so uh, had, was recently divorced, as depressed as a person could be, uh, full of anxiety and fear, and God just met me there. And so from there, I spent about, uh, as part of my aftercare plan, three years in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And early on in that experience, I felt led by God to go back to school and to get a counseling degree, so I got a master's in counseling. Um, in 2003, I landed at the Village Church, and um, the Lord just blew up my heart there all over again. At that point, I had been a believer for about three years, and He laid on my heart to start a ministry to the weak, the wounded, the strayed, the lost, the addicted, the afflicted, the abused, and the confused. And so we uh, started our ministry, uh, recovery ministry, on uh, January 1st of 2004, and we've been going strong either at the Village Church or here at Citizens ever since. In 2007, they hired me as the Recovery and Reconciliation Pastor. That was also the year that I married my wife. Mm -hmm. and um, So I had spent seven years single serving the church in that sort of a ministry, and I was hired out of full-time private practice as a biblical counselor. So I was doing licensed counseling um, from a biblical perspective. And then finally, in 2014, was invited to come to Plano to start the campus out here and start another ministry, and what a joy that's been. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my background and experience. Goodness. I always get teared up at your story. Um, mm. it, is, it is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing to uh, know the man that you are and um, to watch the ways that you enter into the woundedness and brokenness of people's lives uh, in such great authenticity and with such great hope. You are a carrier of hope because you um, carry the gospel of Christ. Uh, and we have it. We always joke on staff that uh, when we can't find Michael, that he's probably under a bridge somewhere ministering to someone. And nine times out of 10, <laughs> that's true. So, uh, Michael, we are so glad to have you. Uh, yeah. So glad to have you here today. So let's let's get started uh, I'd love to uh, start with some definitions. We're talking about substance abuse. This is a really difficult conversation to have, but oftentimes it gets even more difficult because we, we just don't even have a correct definition. So let's start there. What is substance abuse and how is it defined? How do we see it defined culturally or even scientifically? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, I found a definition of addiction uh, from the APA, and it states this. It says... Um, addiction is a complex condition, uh, a brain disease that is manifested by compulsive use despite harmful consequences. People with addiction have intense 
focus on using to the point that it takes over their life. They keep using even when they know it will cause problems. And so that was from a couple of years ago. Um, recently, I think they've broadened that idea to uh, the idea instead of a, uh, a brain disease, a complex disorder, which I think would be more in line with kind of what we would we would think. Um, still, though, uh, even that definition is fairly reductionistic. Um, when you're talking culturally, just in terms of like subject matter experts out there in terms of addictions or substance abuse, a lot of people will look to like Alcoholics Anonymous. And I would say that in Alcoholics Anonymous and in some of the better treatment centers, they would describe it as a three-part disease. So they describe the three-part disease model. And I know a lot of times whenever Christians come together with that idea of a disease, there's a bit of a collision. Is it a disease or does is it sin? Um, and so I, th- I think that's really the wrong debate actually to be having because we do understand that sin affects the body. And so if at some point we find out that an alcoholic um, processes alcohol, let's say, differently than a normal person, that wouldn't be inconsistent with a biblical worldview. I'm not a doctor. I don't know about those things. However, there is some speculation uh, around that. So the three-part disease model really centers around something that they call the physical allergy. So it's a physical aspect to that. And so when the alcoholic drinks, um, what he experiences when he drinks uh, is the phenomenon of craving, which normal people don't experience. So what that sets into motion is that they want more and more and more and more. And the way that that has been described in some settings, again, I don't know to the degree, I think that the jury's still out in terms of whether or not this is true. You would think you would be able to figure this out, but uh, the body of an alcoholic uh, has been t- said to break down alcohol into something called tetrahydroisoquinlin. What that is, is it's a heroin-like substance that mm-hmm. they used to use on battlefield amputees, and it became so addictive that they stopped using it. And so mm-hmm. you can understand if that was to be true, why, if when an alcoholic, a- alcoholic drank, why it would become imperative to have more and more and more. Normal person doesn't uh, experience that. But if you don't drink, right, then that's not a problem. If you're allergic to strawberries, you don't eat strawberries. So there must be something more to that than that. And so that's where the second part of that disease model comes in, which is called the mental obsession. And the mental obsession, they say, of every abnormal drinker is to drink like a normal person. So you come up with all these different strategies in your life of how to be able to maintain relationship with this thing that you don't want to part with, which really points to the bigger problem, the main problem, and we would concur with Alcoholics Anonymous, that the the bigger problem is the spiritual problem. Um, And so when I talk about being reductionistic, when you start to eliminate some of these components, then you start looking at it less holistically. Um, So in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about something called the spiritual malady, which just means spiritual problem. I was talking one time to a guy who was in seminary, and I was at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and he knew I was a pastor. So he came up to me and he was like, hey, did you hear about it today? They're talking about the spiritual malady, the spiritual malady. And I said, yeah. I was like, do you know what the spiritual malady is? I mean, this is a seminary student. And he just looked at me with a blank face and I said, our spiritual malady, our problem is a problem called sin. That's our Mm -hmm. spiritual malady. He never connected the dots. Um, And so in part, it's important to be able to 
define that biblically so that he can connect the dots to understand that the only solution for that spiritual problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any other message is a false message, is a false hope, is is a message that has limitations Mm -hmm. to it. So, uh, yeah, that's just in terms of culturally Mm -hmm. some of the understanding of what... uh, what addiction is. That's incredibly helpful. And also, yes. uh, I feel like I need to Google like 70 different things. Um, so that's Tetra. Yeah, give us that one more time. Isoquinlin. Isoquinlin. Tetra Hydra Isoquinlin. Great. Okay. Sounds really smart. It, you know. it does because yeah. you are. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, Michael, you touched on this a little bit uh, just around the biblical definitions uh, of substance abuse. It, it, talk to us a little bit. Uh, does the Bible have examples of or define substance abuse at all? Uh, where, Or even can we pull principles from the Bible around what you're talking about? Sure. First of all, I just want to say that we as a ministry, I personally believe that the scriptures are sufficient and that the gospel mm-hmm. is relevant to address the deepest, darkest, and most disordered parts of our lives. When we say that the scriptures are sufficient, though, we're not saying that it tells us everything we could know about a specific subject, just everything that we need to know. So do I need to understand my biochemistry in order to find freedom from addiction? The answer, I had no idea about my biochemistry whenever God set me free. So it, it, it shows us everything that we need to know. The Bible gives us what I believe is a much more robust understanding of human problems, including addiction. Though the word addiction does not appear in the scriptures, the ideas describing addiction certainly can be found there. So said concisely, uh, we would say that though addiction may have mental and physical aspects to it, that is fundamentally a spiritual problem. Mm -hmm. It is actually a worship disorder. Yeah, that's good. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about it. So uh, we worship that which is uppermost in our affections. So whenever I was describing the spiritual problem earlier, the spiritual malady, the fact that the alcoholic, the addict can't imagine life without this thing, that it is, it becomes your reason for living. So uh, whenever I was caught up first in alcoholism and then drug addiction, uh you know, that's what I was living for. That's what got me up in the morning. I planned my days around being able to meet with uh, the thing that I loved. And so the reason for that is, you know, um, I think every single person has what I would call a biopsychosocial footprint. So that just means I have a biology that I bring to the table a psychology that I bring to the table, a set of relationship influences culturally and spiritually. And so for me, being an insecure kid, having a history of alcoholism and drug addiction in my family, I brought that predisposition um, my, to that flesh pattern. And so whenever I first drank, man, it was like magic. I was like, this is the thing that was missing most from my life. It put me on par with everyone else. It took away my insecurities. And I thought this is the thing that I need to revolve my life around. And it, it was, it became the thing that I worshiped and the thing that I was willing to die for. Can you talk to us about how the gospel then would redeem that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, as with every other issue, the, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus enters into the brokenness, into our space, that he loves us right where he is, right where we are at. He reveals himself to us 
as the better one to give our lives to. And we fall in love with him. And so um, when we fall in love with him, when we start to order our lives around him, when we start to worship him, it it pushes out those lesser things. And we begin to love the things that he loves and we begin to hate the things that he hates. And we just fall in love with something greater, the thing that we were meant to live for. And so there's there's lostness and there's emptiness that explains why we would turn to a substance. It's totally understandable, but it also turns into slavery. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I hear what you're saying and that we, we all as sinners, as enemies of God, have disordered worship patterns. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is the, the beauty of the gospel, the counterculture nature of the gospel that reorders our, our worship. Yeah. To, to be rightly defined. It frees us. Christ. Right, yeah, and then rightly identified, right? So mm-hmm. rather than insecure and uh, scared and coming from broken family, you are rightly situated. Yeah, and I don't want to pretend coming out of that that it was just went from, I mean, there was a change in the orientation of my life. There was a change in the trajectory of my life, but my life was still a great mess, mm-hmm. you know? And so sometimes it would take me, because I had been dependent for so long, it would take me three hours to get out of the house, praying, reading my Bible, et cetera, just because my flesh patterns were so strong, you know? And it really takes uh, learning to live by the Spirit rather than living by the flesh to, to even be able to walk in that. Can you, I want to harp on that a little bit. Um, I mean, you've given us already such great categories, just thinking about the uh, really what I saw the way you broke down the the AA um, kind of definition and how really what we saw in that is where some of us may look and just see the physical as the primary problem, like the root and the foundation of that, right, is that the spiritual malady, I guess mm-hmm. as they would say. Um, but maybe like for, for some that are listening, and I'm even thinking of myself where um, maybe it's like, man, I'm, you know, I'm hearing what you're saying and you're creating uh, great categories, but I'm I'm not really sure, you know, what that what the day to day of a of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. addiction looks like. Could you kind of walk us through um, kind of that struggle as you were just articulating? And give us sure. some examples. So uh, I like going to um, the observations of a guy who's actually quoted uh, in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, he is a guy named Dr. William Silkworth, and he was a psychiatrist who was working back in the 1930s with alcoholics and drug addicts. And he cared deeply for the men and women that he was trying to treat. And so in his spending time with these alcoholics and addicts, he came up with this description, and I'll read it to you. And then we'll talk a little bit about it. But he said this, he said, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And I think that's true for both alcoholics and non-alcoholics. We like the way it makes us feel. But for the alcoholic, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, discontented, unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks they see others drinking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope 
for his recovery. So this is a psychiatrist, so he's speaking in psychiatric language. He is burdened for these men and women. He'll actually go on to talk about the limitations of what he's been able to offer. And he also talks about the revolutionary change that he's seen in some that he can't produce in his clients. Hmm. So with that, if you were to take that and you were just to develop a cycle, um, it starts with being irritable, restless, and discontent. Okay. Then you move from there, you have a desire for relief. Who wouldn't want to find relief from being irritable, restless, and discontent? And then you see others drinking with impunity. You're walking by the bar. You're seeing they're having a great time. You're miserable, right? And you're like, that will fix what's going on. And it will. Um, And so you go and you begin to think and, and obsess about the thing that you think will fix what's wrong with you. And then you eventually, where your mind goes, your feet are sure to follow then you pass into the well-known stages of a spree, that phenomenon of craving kicks in, and then you come out the other side with injuries. Um, The injuries that come out sometimes are loss of self-esteem, self-respect, personal relationships, but then a person begins to become institutionalized, jails, hospitals, treatment centers, those kinds of things, but eventually leads to death. You emerge from those injuries with remorse, with a firm resolution not to do it again. And what happens is, you know, whether it's a day, a week, a month later, you're right back in the same spot again, wondering how you got there again. Mm-hmm. That is the experience. But then, so when you talk about something like addiction, I think it's better to start with somebody's experience because people will be like, that's me. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start to break it down, you can start to explain it biblically. So that's the observations of Dr. William Silkworth. But now we have God's word to come in and say, okay, let's just start with irritable, restless, and discontent, right? What irritable, restless, and discontent is just the opposite of peace. Hmm. And so can we find anything biblically about what have might have disrupted our peace, the shalom of the garden, right? right. Original sin disrupted that. Now, I could be in a room, because in our recovery ministry here, that is a small fraction of the people that we minister to. Right. <clears throat> and when I ask the room, okay, so who in this room has never felt irritable, restless, and discontent? Nobody raises their hand, because this is not just an alcoholic problem. This right. is a this is a human problem. Right. Yeah. And so we can start to see the biblical definition that that sin entered into this world through one man, right? And spread to all men because all men sin. And so this is this disruption of peace because God is our peace. And so in that fracture, um, it's disrupted that peace. And of course, we're longing for something, longing to fill that. And then you can say, you see others, the word for that is, is temptation. The enemy comes along We have real personal evil who is tempting the flesh through the world to find answers apart from Jesus, right? That's what he doesn't care where it is as long as it's someplace else. And he's offering a remedy that's a counterfeit, right? Mm -hmm. And then we give ourselves to that and you just can see the cycle uh, go around. Now, where do we see addiction in that? Well, in temptation, there's always deception, right? And so the deception is always this. It's the Romans 125 lie that... That that um, that they worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator. So what we're doing is we're looking to His stuff to fix us when it can't fix us. You cannot fix a spiritual problem with a physical thing. So me drinking alcohol is might make medicate me 
and make me feel better about the problems that I'm experiencing, but it's not going to fix it. In fact, it makes it worse and worse and it compounds over time. And so around that verse in Romans 1.25, it says, and God gave them over in their minds. He gave them over in their bodies. He gave them over in their hearts. And so you want to talk about the spiritual, the physical, the, the, uh, and the mental. Exactly. Thank you. Um, uh, that's, you see it right there scripturally. And so does God tell us everything that's going on mentally? No, but it does say that when you're given over to something. So loss of control is a key feature of addiction. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they will say um, there's two tests to find out if you're alcoholic. The first is if when you honestly want to, you cannot stop entirely. That's a loss of control. The second is when you drink, you can't control the amount you take. And if you can answer yes to either one of those, then you're probably suffering from an illness that only a spiritual awakening can, can overcome. So... That's the same thing that the Bible is saying. It's saying when you're given, like you don't decide one day, like I want to lose control of this. Some of us, like I believe me, I drank alcoholically for the first time. I think I was genetically predisposed for that. It was like, okay, this is magic for me. Other people come into that more slowly. And then there's one day that they wake up and they've lost control. Hmm. Michael, what's so beautiful about uh, what you just outlined is not only does that help give an idea of the source of the problem for those who are, you know, walking through this struggle personally. But um, you even given a context and uh, a level ground for us to be able to uh, sympathize uh, with those who have been in that space. Because, yeah, like you say, we may not all um, struggle with uh, stopping to take another drink, but all of us know what it's like to uh, live without peace and to be restless and to try to fill that void with something else. And so that's that's really, really helpful. Yes, to be in, entangled in our own cycles of sin, mm-hmm. and but for the grace of God and the power of, of the cross of Christ to, to be left there. And that's always the question whenever I'm teaching to a mixed audience is, okay, when you don't, when you're irritable, restless, and discontent, and you're not turning to Christ, where do you turn? Because mm-hmm. everyone has their own way that Satan baits their hook. Right. And so now all of a sudden it's, you know, we move from, I don't understand you because that's what we, we don't want people coming in going like, what, what's happening with you? We want people to be able to come alongside and say, I completely understand because at the level of the heart, I do the exact same thing. So Michael, we have, we've talked a little bit about definitions and, uh, in specifically, how do we, how will we biblically define, how does, uh, how do we biblically understand substance abuse? But now I'd love to talk about kind of that, the battle with. So if I'm thinking as a Christian, how do we think about trying to battle or overcome an addiction to a substance? Yeah, I think it's really important, um, that we have a couple of components. One of those is community right, that we're walking with. I think um, to have a gospel-centered community where you can war against your sin, um, where you can be accountable, where you can continue to sit under the care and the counsel of God's Word um, is really super important. We also kind of need to look at it. I know my story um, is unique in some ways. It wasn't that there wasn't a battle for many years that preceded that that glorious moment where Christ touched my life. Um, but we need to see it, I think, it, as a discipleship opportunity that, that you know, none of us just 
uh, get saved and then we are these beautiful, pure Christian. I mean, that is a process called sanctification that happens over time. And so to have a community where you can be honest, where you can live in the light, where you can war, um, where when you make mistakes, there's people there to rally with you and to um, help lead you back to Christ um, as we teach about the beauty of who Jesus is and his heart for us. And so um, to have that community uh, and to have that counsel, I think, is really important. And not just to, to do it um, you know, as an add-on, if you will, to the rest of your life, but really immersing yourself. Like when I look at um, the first century church, what I can see there, um, sometimes the modern church doesn't seem to even come close to the type of daily interaction that they had with one another, the devotion that they had with one another. And so it's going to take more than a Sunday gathering and maybe a once a week Bible study. It is, you're going to have to form community. Um, and so those groups provide opportunity for connection, but do not guarantee connection. So there has to be an intentionality because here's what I know. Whenever I was walking out of that lifestyle, that meant part of, part of it being a worship disorder means that you gather with people who love the same things that you do. And so when your worship changes, those relationships, when you are no longer celebrating the same things, you don't have to try to walk away from that. They just kind of yeah. uh, fade away. And so it was just this wonderful thing for me. Uh, I had been in church my whole life, but I'd never felt a part of the body of Christ. And I would have told you I was a Christian, but I wasn't. Whenever I was born again, all of a sudden I felt at home in the body of Christ. And I, so I can remember the first time I went back to church, I signed up to be uh, a member I signed up to be rebaptized, you know, as uh, as I, that's where I was thinking, not realizing that I'd never been saved before, and um, was in a home group uh, later that day, um, you know, and figuring out how I could serve the church. So yeah, and sometimes I just think we want we're going to be able to stick our toe in and just okay, I can just get a little bit of this, but really it took being deeply involved with people trying to head in the same direction, and even. In my group in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, though I would say that it wasn't gospel-centered recovery, at least there was people around me that were trying to stay sober, you know? And so there's, I think that the oftentimes Alcoholics Anonymous, from that standpoint, just in terms of the regularity of meeting together, looks more like the first century church mm -hmm. than, uh, than the modern church does. We just have to be mindful of that and build out pathways for people within the church, realizing it's, it's going to take, I mean, if you're using every day, you need to be immersed. Uh, every day. <laughs> yeah, every day. Every day. That's so good. I love, too, that you point out the, uh, the emphasis on the individual entering into those spaces as mm -hmm. well, that it's you don't come only as a recipient, but as those saved into the body of Christ, as a member of the body, we have a function. We get to participate yes. in a way that actually it acts as a, a part of the body. You have a role to play, and in that, there's a, there's ownership and a lot of delight in the way that God's made us and gets to wire us with one another. And I think it's it's so important as we step into those spaces to recognize not only am I uh, here in a way I am being served by the people around me, but I've I've also come to serve them. Yeah. 
in a very uh, real way, very real sense. My biggest problem was that I was self-serving, right? I mean, that's <laughs> wow. like I just kept serving yes, myself so more good. and more. So good. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Could you maybe, in addition to that, um, I'm imagining coming coming out of a, that place and maybe feeling broken and feeling right like there's you know ground to cover. Uh, how um, redeeming was it then to step into the to the house of God and find community there? Um, and as you said, to be able to be a part of the community and know that oh, I actually have um, something that I can t- offer and give back to the body. Like, how did that aid in the process? Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, so to have people. Again, we're headed in the same direction to have opportunities to step in, to serve, because when you are serving, you feel a part of something. And, you know, I I wasn't in a position to be leading a small group or anything like that, but I could get on the parking team and the sports Mm -hmm. team and the student ministry and all of those kinds of things. And so there were definitely places. And so I think it's also important uh, that we try to create those spaces um, within the church for people to be able to serve, um, because I think that's really an important uh, part of that. And then that grows over time. Uh, and as you, gosh, when when you're so raw coming in and you've like you've been completely exposed, so it's you have nothing to hide anymore. There's an authenticity when mm-hmm. you engage into groups that I think is contagious, even though you don't know what you're doing. So just to yeah. be in groups. And in that realness, um, it helps shape those relationships. And those relationships can go really deep, really fast. My first small group leader, I had to spend 30 days in a work release program in Denton County Jail. And I mean, he was my small group leader that walked me through that whole thing, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's that's awesome. Maybe talk to us a little bit now. So we see, right, the the church obviously has a role um, in aiding in this process. Uh, is there ever a time or um, a place for therapy and model, uh, modern psychology to step in or, or even medication? Um, is there a space for that? Uh, do you think it's necessary? Yeah. So uh, I think what I would say is that it has limitations okay. because it tends to be symptomatic, address symptoms. If we were talking about addressing the root causes, then we would be talking about things like sin. And so there's not a remedy outside of Jesus for that. So we say that treating the symptoms is like giving a man an aspirin for a headache that's being caused by a brain tumor. Hmm. Um, Now, uh, will it help with the headache? Yes. Will it help with the brain tumor? No. So is it wrong to give him the aspirin? No, just don't tell them it's going to fix the brain tumor. Gotcha. So it, you just have to understand where that fits. Um, and sometimes it's unloving not to give them the aspirin, right? I'm going to yeah. withhold the aspirin from you. But we have to understand that all of that stuff has to do with shaping the flesh um, rather than doing anything spiritually. That work can only be done by the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Talk to us a little bit as we consider as we consider substance abuse, battling substance abuse, overcoming it as believers, what is the goal? What is our what is our hope in all of that? Yeah. Regardless of who I'm seeing in biblical counseling or ministering to here at the church, um, you always in counseling you want to clarify goals, right? What are the what is the goal? And if our goal 
is not the same as God's goal, then we're going to get super confused in terms of mm -hmm. what he's doing at times. And so his goal, the good that he wants to do is to make us more like Christ, right? Uh, that's the Romans 8. This is the good. And so if we get confused or if our goal is different, if our goal is not to suffer, then we're not going to see how Christ will use our suffering in order to make us more like Christ. Um, we will think that he has abandoned us or that he doesn't love us or something like that, rather than saying, no, he will even use that um, for your good. So the goal is, uh, is sanctification, is to become more like Christ. Mm. Man, that's, that's rich. Uh, this has been such a, such a helpful dialogue. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, maybe as we start to conclude, um, some takeaways for us, right? So maybe some of us uh, who are here and we have people in our life who are struggling uh, with substance uh, abuse and addiction, how can we um, be more of an encouragement uh, and a support system uh, around them, right? What are some What are some things that work and doesn't work as we try to be that community that you talked about that comes around um, and, and, and walks through intentionally in the process? Yeah, so if, if there's a loved one that you have um, that's struggling, um, here's what I know that doesn't work. Um, I can't fix myself and we can't fix them or, hmm. you know, and so, uh, yeah, that's just not going to go anywhere. So um, to encourage people to seek out help, um, uh, I think whenever I reached that point in my life where I was willing to get help, that was... Uh, that was a good sign because there was a, a humility in being willing to step into something where it was going to be known. There was a desperation in my life that uh, that I'm like, okay, I, I don't know that this is going to work, but at least I'm willing to go and nobody's twisting my arm to go. I actually want to go. Um, I will always tell my clients that if you are here um, because someone else wants you to be here, rather than you being personally engaged in this, then it's probably not gonna be really helpful. You're just checking boxes. And I did that for a long time. So to, uh, to seek help uh, if a medical detox is necessary to get that medical detox. If you need a residential program, get that. If you need separation from temptations, uh, do that so that you can hear and re receive truth. Um, Ultimately, uh, you know, just in terms of the treatment center world, I think that there are some really good biblically based residential programs, but I don't know that there is a good, to my knowledge, a gospel centered treatment center. And what I mean by that is that um, in the treatment world, uh, you have some that are biblically based, but they tend not to have like the medical and technological component to it. And then on the flip side, you have some that are very good medically uh, and technologically, um, but they tend to, when it comes to spirituality, be much more vague uh, or not address that at all. And so one of the hopes of Gospel Recovery Network, because I believe it is a bit like the unicorn, is to have, um, in the best sense of the world, world word, um, a integrated treatment center, which would bring the medical and the technological along with the biblically based teaching, because there is a place for medicine in that. Um, and when I talk about integration, I'm not talking about the, the, the bad kind of integration where we're trying to 
um, syncretized the wisdom of man and the wisdom of the world. Right. We're just taking the other sciences, interpreting those biblically and making them useful. So if somebody it does have you know a biochemical issue and they're trying to recover, I mean, for me personally, I was on and off of antidepressants coming out of addiction for about the first three years. Mm -hmm. That can be a support biochemically for somebody, just like you have relational support. That's really important for someone trying to come out. You need spiritual support. Uh, yeah, so mm -hmm. all of this. You want to minister to the whole person. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and what I hear in all of that too is uh, there is a movement toward the individual rather than uh, distancing from and mm -hmm. that you are mirroring the heart of Christ as you move towards your loved one, the, your friend, the, the person that is enslaved in addiction to say, I, I, I care about you. You're good at isolating. The guilt and shame are going to make you isolate. And I mean, certainly coming out of a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. That there is a, a world, a system that has been set up to encourage that. So even all the more, right? How important it is for us to actually move in towards those that... To pursue. Yes, that we know are, are hurting and listening to them, posturing our hearts in a way that is humble to understand, to seek to understand, to point them to Christ. So, yeah. yeah. Gosh, it's so good. Michael, um, I'd love for, for us to just kind of close and talk about some practical ways, specifically biblical habits and practices uh, for those maybe who are listening that are personally battling addictions. What are some biblical practices and habits that they can uh, assume that, that could help them in, in their struggle? Sure. Um, well, just like uh, just tying it back to the idea of a worship disorder, um, the thing that we uh, center our lives around has certain practices uh, of engaging in that. And so in the same way, when we begin to reorient our lives around Christ, there are certain practices um, out of that when, when the gospel really takes hold in our hearts and when we are really changed, um, when our hearts are changed. And so, you know, we've taken... Uh, one of the things that we do both as a church and under Gospel Recovery Network is we want to engage the culture. And um, I, I love what Culture Matter does, does here because it's, it's very good at that. And so we look into the culture and the recovery culture and we see things like the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we want to recognize the fact that there are truths in those steps. Um, and so we want to take those truths and we want to... Um, orient those truths back into the biblical narrative um, and apply them within a gospel context so that they're not misapplied truths. And so there are practices that we actually that are part of what we would call spiritual formation here, right, uh, that are essential, not just for the addict, for, for the Christian life. That I'll, I'll, I'll close with this, that there was um, a man, he was a very crass and vile uh, older man in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, uh, I went to his house with a friend um, in his very last days. Uh, and um, he said this, he said, um, Michael, he said, when I was in the church, they taught me how to get saved. But when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they taught me how to live. And I thought, what an indictment on the mm. church that when we when we're say when we're converted, right? That's the end of one life, but it's the beginning of another life. And so we're called to make disciples. 
And so there has to be people that are walking them. And so what he was telling me was that the church that he was coming from, once you once you said yes to Christ, that was the end rather than the beginning, right? And so I think there is, again, just returning to the idea of discipleship is just imperative. Yeah, I love that. It, it reminds me of, uh, well, it is the, the Great Commission, right, where we see says Jesus says to go and baptize all people, teaching them all that he has commanded them. Mm-hmm. So it is it is make the disciple and, and ultimately shepherd them in a direction, teach what he has commanded in order that they might obey. Yeah. So good. Gosh. Well, Michael, thank you. It's Marcus. Thank you so much for being with us. We, um, I'm so grateful for you. It, it is so clear that the mantle that God has placed on you and uh, the gift of the pastor that you are to me and uh, in, in our church. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I've loved it. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by David Roark. If you like what you heard, please give us a great review where you listen to the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram. Thanks and God bless.